0: Yeah, you know, a little while back I was talking about how there was a certain type of guy who decided, like, my personality is going to be the Bill Hicks archetype, a certain type of Gen X person generally who at some point in their life, you know, probably in their 20s, they decided, you know, I'm going to be the Bill Hicks type of guy. I'm going to be laid back, but I'm going to talk about harsh truths. I'm going to talk about the mil- the military Industrial complex. I'm going to be critical of religion and I'm going to be pro-drug and into into partying, but not a total degenerate. Like, I'm going to skirt the line between being bad. You know, it's that sort of anti-hero thing that became popular, especially in the early 90s. It really kind of hit full steam in the early 90s. And I don't even think a lot of the guys who adopted that personality... I don't even think a lot of them were necessarily Bill Hicks fans, or even knew who he was. I think it was just kind of a zeitgeist thing. I think that was just in the air, because these are people who, if their parents hadn't been hippies in the '60s, they were a little bit older, and either way, they were kind of the in. They were doing this sort of like post '1960s thing, you know, it was, you know, kind of a response to the '80s but pulling from the 1960s a little more. I don't know. This, this feels stupid, analyzing it in this way. I don't even know that that's right, what I just said. I don't think there's any... There's no right or wrong. That's the whole thing. There's no right or wrong. Because uh, that's a part of it. That whole outlook. It's sort of... I don't know. It's not fully nihilistic, because there's still just like this little bit of hope. Because people like that still wanted to have fun. Which is something that's different from my generation, where... The pseudo nihilism of my generation doesn't want to have any fun, which makes it even worse. Because, I mean, I'm not a big fan of the pseudo nihilism of Gen X, but at least it was fun. But the, the pseudo nihilism of millennials, and I don't know what the Zomers are up to, but uh, the pseudo nihilism of my generation, because if you don't know, I'm, I'm the main millennial. That's what I call myself. You know, this show will be renamed any day. As soon as I have the the balls, I'm going to rename this show just The Main Millennial. But even though you see every night's a school night, even though you see night school, why not just add another name, The Main Millennial? That's the other name of this show. And even if you see night school written on the top there, it's really The Main Millennial. But, But anyway, as The Main Millennial... I try not to criticize my generation too much. I don't. I think that sort of self-criticism of your generation gets old real quick. But you also are more familiar with your generation than anybody else, and familiarity breeds contempt. So of course you're going to criticize your own generation. But that is one thing that bothers me: is just that you know there's this pseudo nihilism that's been in the air for a, a few generations now, definitely a couple generations. But that is one thing I liked about Gen X pseudo-nihilism is there was an element of adventure to it. There was something fun about it, creative even. Whereas it's totally anti-creative, it's anti-adventure, and it's anti-fun. The new pseudo-nihilism is just a total negation and an obsession with nihilism as meaning you know that's why that's what the worst thing about it (laughs) is just that it's not even nihilistic because being that way gives people a sense of meaning therefore it's not actually nihilistic it's a paradox but uh, anyway, just uh, I wanted to continue what I was saying. Just There was a certain type of person, I've talked about it before, who became that Bill Hicks type of guy. Whether or not they even knew who Bill Hicks was, they adopted that sort of personality because it was in the air. And uh, my generation's version of that was the Tyler Durden. I was thinking about this yesterday or this morning, whatever, whatever counts for a day these days. I was thinking about it at some point and how when Fight Club came out, there was this very distinct moment where like five guys I knew suddenly started trying to talk like that. And it wasn't that far off from that Bill Hicks sort of thing. I wish I could come up with another example other than Bill Hicks, because also, you also saw it like when that idea became more mainstream, when that Bill Hicks type person like when that Bill Hicks type person archetype that personality became more popular and more mainstream you started to see it in the form of cool teachers both in real life and on shows and in movies the cool teacher talked that way he talked to students on their level and criticized the institutions and said man and maybe even swore and i experienced that myself in college like going to the evergreen the now infamous evergreen state college there were professors there like that They'd occasionally drop an f-bomb, and by that I don't mean the, the the word fuck. I mean the other f-word. No, they would they would they would say fuck, and uh, you were like, oh, I'm I'm in college. I'm, I'm in I'm in cool college. I'm in cool college now because the 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 Gen X professor says fuck. But they usually had that sort of personality where they were very critical, maybe even critical of the very institution they're working for. But in this completely safe way. It wasn't like Ted Kaczynski was teaching you and sharing his manifesto with you verbally. It was this very safe sort of like, they're not here to help you, man. You got to help yourself, man. Because they got quotas and shit. I don't know thing is, I can't really do that. I think I was born too late to actually be one of those types of guys. Because I do worry sometimes that I am one of those types of guys. I do worry sometimes that this is one of those types of shows. I don't think it is, though. In my heart of hearts, I don't think it is. But I know I'm not a Tyler Durden. I know that I'm not that. I hope that I'm not that. Because that was my generation's version of that, at least, you know... Maybe, if, if not the whole generation, at least my my exact age group. Because there was a distinct moment when Fight Club came out. I was probably maybe in 7th or 8th grade. I'd have to look it up. I was I would say 8th grade. Definitely the middle of junior high, I think. So let's say like 13, 14 years old. And Fight Club came out. And immediately, like, yeah, like five guys I knew suddenly were Tyler Durden. A very pale imitation. And, of course, they were my friends. And I was not a Fight Club fan, to be honest. You know, that's the funny thing, is you'd think I would be. Maybe this is all just, I have this deep-seated fear that people think I'm a Fight Club guy. Oh, that's a guy who, when Fight Club came out, it just changed his world. Are you you listening to the Night School guy? He's he's one of those guys where, when Fight Club came out, it just rocked his world. And he he was never the same since. (laughs) You know, the reality is, that wasn't me, though. That was, you know, I joke about being oppositionally defiant. Of course I'm not diagnosably oppositionally defiant, but I do pointlessly rebel sometimes. And a great example is Fight Club because I still remember the exact morning. I I'd had a sleepover at my house and two friends stayed the night. And I'm the kind of guy like where I had a lot of sleepovers growing up. Like I was at, at friends' houses staying over at other friends' houses, they were staying at my house. It was, you know, one of the main things my friends and I did. And it was amazing. It was fun. You know, it was always fun. I look back on sleepovers, you know, very fondly, even though it's kind of weird. It's like the boys, your boy is going to stay at our house, but you got a real dose of what somebody's family was like. Like, even if they weren't acting totally natural, you still got a real dose for like how another family operates. And you don't get many opportunities to do that growing up. Like you don't really get many opportunities to like really get to really feel what it's like to be in another family for a night. And even though they're, you know, they're not going about their normal family business, you still just get a vibe, you get a smell. Because different families have different smells, their houses smell differently. And it's not just the food they cook. It's not just like potpourri on a on a shelf or something. It's like there's a distinct smell to the people. And when you're in their home, you, you sense it. You're like, this doesn't smell like my home. I had a conversation with a friend growing up where he said my family had a smell. Not a, not like a stink. I hate the word stink. The word stink stinks. The word stink stinks. But uh, he, I remember him saying that my family had a smell and it blew my mind. It's like someone saying you have an accent. Because, you know, in my mind, oh, I talk like the people on TV. I sound like the newscasters and the Hollywood actors. I don't have an accent. But to someone in the South, someone on the East Coast, they would say, well, you do. You have a West Coast accent, whatever whatever it is they say. It's kind of that same sort of vibe where it's like, what do you mean I have an accent? I don't have no accent. This is just how I talk. It's the same thing with the, the family smell where, you know, when my friend told me that my family too had a smell. Because his family had a smell for sure. And I think like, maybe our friendships are partially based on that. Because like, there were some houses I went to. like I had a friend growing up. I've actually experienced this more than once. I've experienced this more than once. But I had a friend growing up, a neighbor. And every time I went to his house, it smelled like somebody was frying meatballs. I And I kind of thought that's what was happening. I thought, like, oh, they're always frying meatballs here. But they weren't. There was just that kind of like... And not just like, you know, and obviously not like they were in that moment frying meatballs, but it's like anytime you cook meat and how the smell lingers even for hours sometimes, how there's just the smell of meat is in the air for the rest of the night. It was almost like they had fried meatballs hours earlier, but their house always smelled like that. And I've met multiple families who have, have that smell, and I didn't like being in their houses. Like even if I liked them that lingering fried meatball smell which actually wasn't meatballs it was just some something that their bodies produced it just made me not want to be there uh, so i think like sometimes like i think about the friends that I, I was in and out of their houses all all the time growing up and they were in my house i think our families while we had our own distinct smells i learned i think that we were able to tolerate and and appreciate that, or we felt comfortable with that. But yeah, just anyway, like sleepovers were very interesting to me because it's like you really get a dose of what that family is like, even if they're not, even if there's a, an element of LARP, even if they're being nicer to each other, they're LARPing that they're nicer to each other, whatever it is, you still get a dose. You still get to know what it feels like to be there. You see what's in their cupboard. You see what's in their fridge. You see what kind of movies they own. But anyway, what got me thinking about this was just that I had friends. They stayed the night at my house. And I'm the kind of guy, too, where when I had a sleepover, I want my friends to be gone as soon as possible in the morning. I want them calling their moms to come pick them up as soon as possible. Yeah, like maybe like my mom will cook them breakfast. Like that's nice. It's nice if they have breakfast. But it's sort of like a breakfast where you know you're just counting down the minutes and their mom's going to be there soon after. Or if I stayed the night at a friend's house, like, I'm calling my mom first thing in the morning. I want to go home. I don't want to hang around. I'm going to feel gross. It's There's this hangover. Like, even though those were long before the days when you drank or partied much, like, a party then was like Pepsi and pizza. And it turns out that makes you feel like shit. You know, I, I didn't know it then. You know that was the time. You know, not to get too nostalgic here, but like that was the time when they gave you these little food pyramid magnets, and the bottom of the pyramid, which is like the thing you should eat the most of, was like bread and carbs and like pasta. They said like make sure you make sure like fifty percent of what you eat is bread with with, and make sure 40 percent, <laughs> make sure forty percent is vegetables, and then you can eat like. 2% meat 2% of your food pyramid should be meat 50% should be bread 40% should be vegetables and then like the other percent is like a mix between like dairy and you know 1% dessert I don't know I don't I don't know how to break it down I just know that there was you were expected to eat a huge amount of bread and uh, so yeah, nobody ever really told me that like drinking Pepsis all day was a problem Nobody told me that, like, just eating pizza all the time was a problem. Like, yeah, you kind of knew. You'd hear things here and there, but it's like, it was just kind of what you did. And uh, so sleepovers, like, if it was a good house, you know, it didn't matter what type of person. You know, because I had friends that were rich. I had friends that were poor. You know, most people were somewhere in between. But a good sleepover meant just something like pizza. Pizza and pop, like, you know, as much as you want, pretty much, is is what a good sleepover usually was. Left to your own devices. The parents aren't in your business. You can't have any fun if the family is in your business. So it's like they get you this food that's good and cheap and fun, and they leave you alone. That's a good sleepover. But, I mean, I always felt like shit the next day. I did feel this sleepover hangover, even though it was years before we started drinking and all that. I still—I would always feel like shit because you stay up really late. You're goofing off. You're sneaking out. You know, you're getting into mischief. You're watching movies. You're staying up very late. I don't need to tell you what a sleepover consists of. But it's just—anyway, you don't get enough sleep. You drink Pepsi all night. You ate a bunch of pizza and chips. So, like, you're going to feel like shit the next day. And so I wanted my friends gone. Or if I was at their house, I wanted to be gone. I made sure to leave right away, and I did my best to encourage them to leave. So this one day, anyway, this one day, though, it was, you know, a little bit old. You know, it was probably like junior high, a junior high sleepover. So a lot of talk about girls. I'm sure there was a lot of talk about girls at that particular one. But I get woken up by my two friends who had stayed over, and they were like, Get up, dude. We're going to go see Fight Club. And I just said, no, I said, no, they were really excited. They were like, they had looked at the, you know, cause at that point in time, you know, you look movies up in the newspaper, like what movies are playing today, what time? And they had, they'd woken up early. They looked at the newspaper at my house. Like, who are these kids? They're waking up early at my house and they're going through the newspaper, looking at movies to go see. But me being me back then, it was like I didn't want to keep hanging out. I need separation. I need I need something. I can't just keep hanging out with the same people I've been hanging out with all night. I need to do my own thing. It's just how I am. I need to you know recalibrate. And these friends were like, "Let's go see Fight Club, dude. Come on." And I just said no. It was very combative, you know. I was very uh, I was very oppositional about it. And I, I didn't go with them. I did not go see Fight Club with them. And the next thing I knew, like Fight Club was their favorite movie. And then like five people I knew started talking like Tyler Durden. And I hadn't even seen it yet. So I didn't even know what they were on. You know, Because that was the interesting thing about life back then. And I mean, it still happens this way. But especially back then is like a new movie or something would come out that completely changed people. I mean, sometimes people would get into a band maybe like or use things like that. But sometimes it would be a movie where a new movie would come out with a character and it would completely change the young men who watched it because they were like, I want to be that guy. And if you hadn't seen that movie or you didn't really have the scoop, you'd just be like, oh, my friend's doing some new thing. You'd be like, oh, oh, that's weird. My friend, my friend suddenly start. He's talking really fast. My, f- my friend is an anarchist, you know, I don't know, whatever it is, you just notice something different about your friend, and then you'd see the movie, and then you'd be like, oh, my friend is just trying to be this character, and that's what we do, you know, that's what we do as children, and I think we kind of do that our whole lives, you know, it's good to be influenced by things to some degree, but it was always kind of weird, like, if you hadn't seen the movie yet, and your friends had, and suddenly you notice that they're acting a certain way, and you're like, oh, they saw this movie with a very charismatic character, But Fight Club was very much that, where I was really resistant to it. I don't know why. I was exceptionally, oppositionally defiant about it. And I refused to even see it in the theater. I don't know, something about the tone of it just put me off. Like, what little I saw of it just kind of put me off. But I can completely see what, I I can completely understand why my friends thought it was so cool. And if I had actually gone to go see it with my friends that day, I'm sure I would have been just like them. And I would have been a little Tyler Durden running around. I'm sure I would have run around. And, and the reason I bring this up, too, is because that's sort of like it was like a, like a jacked up version of the Bill Hicks sort of character. Like Instead of being laid back about those things, it's it's a little more chaotic. It's a little more frenzied, but still kind of making some of the same general points. And that was the tone of things, that was like later Gen X, you know, not later Gen X, but uh, like later 90s, you know, which it was the Gen X period, but, but still, it was kind of like things started to pick up that tone, whereas they had been kind of a laid-back version of that before they got a little bit frenzied, a little bit manic- And I, and I yeah I was just I was not into it at all at all and some of my friends even started a little fight club and by started a fight club I mean they they were at some kind of event where their parents were off doing something else and a bunch of kids were left to their own devices so they had just seen this movie about charismatic characters who fight with cool quotes about you know getting in touch with yourself by fighting. And so they started their own little fight club, and I'm sure I got a very dramatized, exaggerated version of it when they told me about it. But one of my friends did end up cracking his ribs. Like I think he fell. I don't think any. I don't think anybody like punched him really hard in the rib and broke it. I think it was something where like they were. I think it was, they were probably wrestling around. It's probably a lot of shoving. It's cool they did it though. You know, even though I wasn't a Fight Club fan, I don't like the branding. I don't like that they started a capital F, capital C fight club, kind of like a football club, capital F, capital C. Well, I don't like the branding, I do think it's cool that my peers decided to fight each other one day in this organized way because that's something that was totally lost before my generation even. Fighting, you know, just roughhousing is something that got more and more rare. And the punishment for roughhousing got more and more severe. Like, I got suspended in school for a fight. There wasn't even much of a fight. Like, a kid tried to pull me out of a seat and tried to, like, pull my jacket over my head, so I just started kicking him in the stomach. And a substitute teacher saw it, and... Like an umpire, she said, You're out, you know, and we had to go... I had to be... It was in-school suspension. It wasn't... I didn't get... I didn't stay home. It was like... I had to go to this room... This weird room that you never knew existed, and it turns out there's kids in there, locked down. Uh, but it, but anyway, just it, it became a, a certain type of personality you could see, and it you know it's not like it lasted that long, like the Fight Club type personality that people adopted. It's not like it really lasted that long, at least not directly. Like kids weren't acting like Tyler Durden for five years, but I'd say there was about a year there where it, it was definitely there. And I finally saw it on VHS. I saw Fight Club on VHS at some point. And when I saw it, I was like, this is cool. I thought this is a cool movie. I only saw it once. To this day, I only saw I've only seen Fight Club once. But when I saw it, when I finally saw it, I was like, oh, this is what they were talking about. This is good. But I'd been so pointlessly resistant to it that I couldn't completely enjoy it. And I don't think it was completely for me anyway. I really don't. Uh, it just, it didn't really speak to me, but I did eventually see it. And then, uh, you could see though where that entire tone, like that same way that Tyler Durden is scripted. And yeah, I know it's a book because I've never read any any of that guy's books and I never learned how to pronounce his name right either. (laughs) I just, I, I never did anything. I never learned how to do anything. I never learned how to ride a bike. That's true. I never learned how to ride a bike. I still don't know how to ride a bicycle and along with not knowing how to ride a bicycle, I never had a I never learned how to pronounce Chuck Poloniak. Oh, is this a Chuck Poloniak book? Never learned that, never read his books. But I I kinda I, I skimmed one once. And uh, there's a tone to it. There is this sort of like fast-paced pseudo-nihilism to it. And that tone made its way even into nonfiction. Like there's a writer Matthew Randazzo, I think is his name, and he wrote a book about Chris Benoit, the pro wrestler who killed his whole family. And he, he wrote a book about that shortly after it happened, and it's called Ring of Hell. And it was very sensationalistic, and I enjoyed it at the time because like, I wanted nothing more than to read a sensationalistic book about the dark side of pro wrestling. But at the same time, looking back at that book even non-fiction writers were trying to sound like tyler durden like they would swear like i remember in that book ring of hell and i only i only saw fight club once i only read ring of hell once but in ring of hell i remember like i was like a writer shouldn't talk like this a writer who's trying to cover basically someone who's trying to be a journalist shouldn't talk like this he's trying to sound very counterculture and you know and this stuff probably comes from like you know there's always been hunter s thompson's and people like that who I'm, I'm very unfamiliar with i'm very ignorant if you haven't figured that out yet and he's probably that's probably another example like there's probably a whole generation of people who decided to become hunter s thompson you know there's a whole there that's kind of what i'm getting at here is like sometimes there's a certain There's something in the air. Sometimes it's a specific person, a specific movie, and it leads to a whole generation of young men adapting that way of communicating or trying to imitate it at the very least. And now things are just so blown out. Things are so fractured. You know, the the snake has swallowed so much of its own tail. I don't know if that still happens. Like someone probably follows somebody online for a day and starts talking like them and then moves on a day later. Like someone gets on Twitter and suddenly they start talking like everybody talks on Twitter using Twitter terminology and then they move on to the next thing. They start talking like the people they follow on Twitter and then they move on to whatever else it's all just constantly mutating now. But I'm glad I did grow up in a time where you could have something come out, like a movie like Fight Club, and suddenly that changes the tone of not only how your friends who are teenage boys communicate, but it also changes the way people write books, nonfiction books. And and not to say that it was all influenced by that, but there was just a certain tone in the air, and documentaries tried to do that you know, what I like about old documentaries is, like, there was very little editing, very little interference. And then at some point, documentaries were like, you know, we're going to edit this and we're going to set a tone for it. And I think that's when... It's what I call documentary culture. Like, this culture developed around documentaries. Which doesn't really make sense, because documentaries are supposed to capture real-life culture. So the idea of a culture developing around documentaries is a little too meta. It's a little too detached. But it did develop. It's like, this is how you create a documentary. This is how you time things. This is how you edit. This is how you craft a narrative when the narrative was just there or it wasn't there. I mean, I always think about 17... One of my favorite documentaries, or Wildwood, New Jersey. It's another one I like. Countless documentaries, really, but just where there wasn't too overt of an attempt to craft a narrative or edit things a certain way. It was just sort of like, here's the material. But you can see where nonfiction and nonfiction was the same way, too, in the same way journalism was supposed to be that way. And we we see the state of journalism now. And I think the state of journalism now is very much... It's very much influenced by all the things I'm talking about. Not not that journalism's been influenced by Fight Club. But you can see where, like, that way of talking about things. Where, like, even editorialists... where, Where journalism just became editorialism. Like, when you read editorials, you knew what you were getting yourself into. You knew that this was an opinion... You knew that somebody was trying to craft a unique voice. And then journalism tried to kind of co-opt that where even just reporting the news became a form of editorialism. Non-fiction writing became that way. And I, I, I don't know, I at least personally trace that back to the sort of attempt to be counterculture and... Not that that wasn't always there. Like I mentioned, Hunter S. Thompson was always around. There's always been forms of that. There's always been forms of like subversive journalism, subversive observation, transgressive observation. But at some point, and I think it just, a lot of it has to do with technology as well. Where what's interesting about Fight Club is it was right on the cusp. You know, it was right before the digital world began. Uh, began to dominate I think things would be entirely different if it had come out a few years later which it didn't so why theorize about that but I definitely see it as a a pivotal moment for my generation where a bunch of people a bunch of people's voices change right after that basically is is how I saw it and it was temporary but the there was you know a long-standing impact because then everything after that doesn't really stick to me Like, I don't remember anything coming out in the 2000s where I immediately noticed it changed how people communicated with each other or changed who and what they were trying to be. I'm sure somebody could come up with examples and maybe Zomers, maybe people from younger generations would be able to share examples of that. You know, maybe somebody from Gen Z would be able to say, oh, yeah, when I was in high school, this YouTuber got really famous And suddenly, everybody started acting like him. You know, that very well might have happened. I'm sure it did. But that's still kind of compartmentalized. It's still an example of things being fractured, like I was talking about. Whereas, like, when a movie came out, it was such an event. Like, I imagine when The Godfather came out, I mean, I've even heard about this kind of thing. Like, when The Godfather came out in the 70s, where suddenly people started talking like that. Everyone had an Italian uncle who was up to something. Someone had an Italian uncle who stole something once. And now they're related to a a gangster. Everybody starts talking in this coded language. You know, oh yeah, I have an uncle who, uh... Oh, you you know where I got that? It fell off the back of a truck. My uncle, my Italian uncle gave that to me because, you know, family is so important. Your family is so important to me. No, but I have heard that about The Godfather. And I think that was true for just any time there was just a a movie that was, you know, pivotal. I like that word pivotal because it's like some, it's like something pivots around that, around that moment, around that event. And I just wonder if things are still doing that, or if it is so microscopic, so fractured, that it does happen, but it doesn't happen in this central way. You know, like things happened at that point. But the sleepover thing is funny, like thinking about sleepovers. Because you could really just see a movie with your friends at a sleepover, and suddenly your lives are all changed. And the nice thing about most of my friends growing up, like is if you went over to their house and their parents took you to the, the video rental store, oh, you heard of nostalgia? This is, oh, we're so nostalgic. Welcome to the nostalgia industry. Remember video stores? No, but really like, you know, when you did go to a video store, you would just, you'd pick something and based on what you picked, it could be something that legitimately changes all of your personalities. It legitimately changes all of you, not because it's meaningful, but just because it's, something you'd never seen it's something that you're going to talk about for a while and that was always the best is like when people's parents would let you choose you know not like they would let you rent pornography but they would let you choose what you're going to watch because you would go over to those houses and in the same way some houses smelled different in the same way that some families smelled different some families just lived such a fundamentally different lifestyle that you did not want to be at their houses like I had a friend and I think I stayed at his house once or twice. He was my good friend for years. You know, we played together a lot. But I only stayed the night at his house the night I only slept over at his house like once or twice because there was a smell thing, not horrible, but there was definitely there was a different smell. It was a house where there was no Pepsi. And I don't know what it is about Pepsi, but, you know, I was more of a Pepsi guy. I feel like I was from a Pepsi family. I don't want to speak for the rest of my family, but there was always Pepsi in my house. There was always Pepsi at my friend's house. It was just kind of a, we were a Pepsi crowd. But you went over to this kid's house, and there's definitely no Pepsi. And he asks if you want something to drink, and he goes into this basement pantry and brings you a natural soda. Like, they'll say, do you want a soda? And he goes into this basement pantry and brings out this room temperature natural soda, like it's not even cold. It's not even in the. Fr- they don't even keep these in the fridge. And this is real. These people really did this. They had a basement pantry where they stored like non-perishable food, and they would keep these natural sodas in there that were lukewarm, room temperature, and they'd give them to you, and they're awful. And I'd probably like them now. I'd probably enjoy this natural soda now. As a kid, I'd probably hate to be at my house now. Like, if I were a little kid right now and I came over to my house as it is right now, as an adult, I'd probably hate. I'd probably hate the smell. I'd probably go over to my own house right now and be like, "This is one of those weird houses." Um, but uh, this kid's house, I would go there, and yeah, he'd give you like a natural soda stored at room temperature in a basement cupboard. His mom would make you dinner, and it's not like she was some cook, it's not like she was some, you know, food aficionado, but she'd always be like, oh, I think th- I think this would be something interesting for the boys. Like, she'd always want to make something interesting for you. And it's like, we're 10-year-old boys, You know, order us a pizza, or get, make us hamburgers or something. And it's not like these people were hippies or anything like that, it's not like they were, like, vegetarians... They were relatively normal people. Everybody's weird in their own way, but they were relatively normal people. But his mom would always just like want to be like, Oh, the boys will sit at the dinner table and eat something interesting tonight. And that's a nightmare at a sleepover. Having to sit at the dinner table and eat something that the mom considers interesting. While the dad just sits there in silence. And then you never had control at that house over what movie you watched either. Like, the mom would always show you a... It would, it would be like a, a, for, a coming-of-age foreign film. And you'd watch it, and you'd kind of like it because you'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, this movie is considered a classic in whatever country it came from. You know, because it, it, whatever it was, it was going to be a popular enough movie. It's not like these people were digging into, like, independent film. Like, they were going to show you some movie that was popular in France or Sweden or somewhere and it was going to be coming of age because it was all about being a boy. Oh, if you're a boy, you got to watch coming of age films about boys. But they would always make you watch something like that and you'd watch it and you'd you'd kind of get into it, but it wasn't what you wanted to be doing and, and the family would watch it with you. So you never had any time on your own to get into mischief. And by mischief, I just mean like verbal mischief mental mischief, like, because most of the fun at, at sleepovers, and being at a friend's house growing up, was just the stuff that you end up talking about, the little adventures that you have just around the house, you know, that's, that was the stuff that was fun, is, like, you're left to your own devices, but, you know, you, there'd be those families, and they run in packs, too, there is something where they would, water finds its own level, because I found that over time, it was, like, most of the friends that who, whose houses I spent a lot of time at and they spent time at my house, we all were, all, you know, it's not like our parents got together and made a decision to all do th- things the same way. It's just water sort of found its own level and we all just kind of did things the same way and we were comfortable at each other's houses because there was Pepsi and instead of cooking something interesting for the boys, they'd order you a pizza and you'd be able to watch pretty much whatever you want. And my closest friends, it all just kind of ended up being that way. Whereas the families who did have natural soda kept at room temperature in a basement pantry and made you watch coming-of-age foreign films. And it's not like these people were like... It's not like these, these were... Like I said, these were relatively normal people. It's not like these people were artsy. It's not like they were into anything that was particularly niche. They just kind of had some idea of what culture is, and that a, a boy sleepover, a sleepover among like young boys, should be cultured. I think it, it all come kind of comes from that place. And uh, but those families sort of found each other too. I realized. Like Those families ended up sort of finding each other too because there were multiple families like that in my community and I noticed that those kids kind of gravitated toward each, each other. I was friends with a couple of them but they weren't like sleepover friends because you realized like, oh, this isn't the place for me. This isn't going to be fun. Because that was a big part of it is this just simply isn't fun. And... Uh, you're definitely not gonna be. You're not gonna wake up at one of those houses, and all the kids are gonna go see Fight Club. Even though I was too much of a curmudgeon to go see it. Well, and, and so much stuff plays into that. There's so many. There's so much politics with sleepovers growing up. Because if three kids stayed at the same house together, and this always happened in groups of three, if three kids all stayed at the same house, the two kids who are the guests who are staying at the other kid's house. At some point, they're going to team up against that kid because that kid's going to mention some rule. Like the kid whose house it is at some point is going to be like, oh, you can't do that because it's a rule. Like they don't want to get in too much trouble. They don't want to break something. So at some point, they're going to be like, oh, let's not do that. Let's not sneak out. Let's not, you know. So at some point, there's going to be some reason for the two guest kids to team up on the kid whose house it is. There's just something about that. Like I did it. I gave and I received Like growing up, like I had friends kind of get on my case. And I think that's what happened the the night before Fight Club. The night before my friends wanted to go see Fight Club. I think it had been one of those nights where they were giving me a hard time because it was my house. And I was probably like a stick in the mud about something. Like, oh, let's not throw toilet paper at the wall. Let's not get, let's not make toilet paper wet and then throw it at the wall so it sticks. You know, I probably said something like that. Uh, And so I I was probably in an extra bad mood because of that, because I'd been teamed. My friends had probably teamed up against me in the same way that I would team up against another friend. There's a lot of teaming up, and for some reason, it was always against the kid whose house it was. But some kids were really bad with the rules, like because I liked sneaking out. You know, I was into sneaking out. I was into getting into some mischief and that kind of thing. So I wasn't too bad. But every once in a while you would have a kid who didn't want to do anything bad. And it's not like we were truly bad kids. But, you know, you, you want to do a little bit. You want to test the boundaries. And so that's another reason why I liked sleepovers. Because you get a real good idea. You know, you get an idea of who's down for the cause. And the cause being, let's figure this thing out. Let's figure out life. Let's test some boundaries. Let's get up to a little bit of mischief, some light mischief, nothing horrible. But let's try to sneak out. Let's, oh, that window goes right to the road. Let's sneak out that window and go run around in the park. Let's go for a little adventure in the middle of the night. There's always a kid who didn't want to do it, or there's a, a kid who would want to go to bed early. Because oh, that was the other thing about the house, like the natural soda room temperature foreign coming of age film houses like when you'd stay at those you were also expected to go to bed early whereas like a truly good sleepover with your good friends you're gonna see dawn you know you're gonna see dawn crack and that's just how it is and that's why you're gonna feel like shit the next day because you're gonna stay up all night drinking Pepsi and you are gonna feel like shit and you're not gonna want to go see Fight Club I feel like Fight Club would have made me sick even if I had seen it that morning that's why I didn't want to go. If I go see Fight Club with you guys, I'm going to be sick. That's why I didn't want to go see it. And to be totally honest, the first time I did see Fight Club when I saw it on VHS, it did make me kind of sick. I didn't like the aesthetic, I didn't like the visual. While I enjoyed the story, it was fast paced, it was interesting. Something about it kind of made me sick. Like, you know, if I ate the wrong thing and I watched that, I feel like I would be legitimately ill. But, uh, you know, it's just, you know, some things make you feel that way. In the same way you don't like the smell of certain houses, some movies just make you feel sick. And not because they show anything. Not because of gore. Not because they show you anything filthy. This movie makes me sick because they... Did you know in this movie they zoom in on a trash can? They spend five minutes zooming in on a trash can, showing you everything that's in this guy's trash can. Movies like that make me sick. <laughs> in a In a totally normal movie, like yeah, you'd expect that in an art film. It's, oh, this is an independent art film. There's a There's a scene in it where they zoom in on the contents of a trash can for five minutes, with no dialogue. You expect that from an indep- in an, in, an indie art film. But, like, a completely mainstream movie where up to that point everything is exactly... Like, the pacing, the story, the characters are everything that you expect them to be. But all of a sudden, like, the camera just, like, walks into a kitchen and opens up the trash can in the kitchen and just zooms in on the garbage for five minutes. And that's all you see. And there's no context. has nothing to do with the story. You know, that's... uh just trying to make... They're just trying to make... Oh, you're, you're going to go see that movie? That's one of those movies where they just try to make you feel sick. I like the idea of thinking about movies trying to make you feel something. Like, obviously, horror movies make you scared. Obviously, rom-coms make your heart flutter. But I like, I like the idea of a movie that's just like, we want you to feel sick. Not to make you puke, but just to give you kind of like an unsettled, like... Just a very low-grade sort of nausea. Nausea? Nausea? Oh, this is one of those movies. They're trying to make you feel this way. Oh, he's one of, he's one of those guys. He, he's one of those guys who just tries to make you feel sick. Everything he says is just, it's designed to make you feel sick. I feel like that's what some of those houses tried to do. Because that's how I would feel with those houses I'm talking about. Those houses you go to where the family has a slightly different smell, like a noticeably different smell to them. And you go in and then they offer you a soda and it's a room temperature natural soda. And they're like, oh, we're cooking something for dinner tonight. It's something just disgusting that they think is interesting. I think that that's just a game where the family is trying to make you feel sick. We invite our son's friends over for sleepovers just to make them feel like this low-grade nausea the entire time they're here. Because that's how I would feel. And nothing even against these people. I think these were well-meaning people. Aside from the fact that they were deliberately trying to make me feel sick, I think these were decent people. Other than that... no but there there is certain things come out at a certain time and you just see where it's like there it's like a bomb going off and suddenly everything pivots around that thing and certain movies did that growing up and you see it especially affect boys being a boy i would see that with boys and i mean you could even think about i mean not i hate to go into this nostalgia thing but i you know if you're talking about your childhood you got to talk about you know, things that happened in your childhood. And, like, The Little Mermaid's a good example of that, where it felt like a bunch of little girls, like, pivoted around that. It's like The Little Mermaid was a bomb that went off. And, like, you know, Frozen is a, is a newer version of that. And it's not just that something is popular. It's just that it's, like, it plays right into the zeitgeist. Where everything, n- nothing is untouched by it, I think is, is how I would put it. It's like nothing is untouched by this thing that came out, by this event. And of course it happens in you know, social and political ways, but it was always interesting to me as a kid when it was like media, a movie, music, but movies in particular really seemed like an event when I was growing up. And then there reached a point where it no longer felt that way. And I don't know if that's just me or if that's something that happened all around. I don't know if that's universal. It feels universal because I feel that way. But everything I feel feels universal. So I don't know if that was just me. But they, 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 they did reach a point where it just seemed like movies were no longer events. Where you didn't see this bomb go off that changed everybody whether they were into it or not. Like, even just me talking about this, even though I was not into Fight Club, even though I resisted Fight Club, you can see that it impacted me, and that's what I mean. Like, I couldn't even escape it. Like, I was touched by it as much as the people I knew who were really into it. Nobody was untouched by it when it came out. If you were a teenage boy or older... And the, the, the style stuck around for a little while longer, like even after people were no longer talking about the movie itself, I felt like there was a certain tone to the way people communicated to even the way they wrote. And I don't know, things just feel far too fractured now, even though I've talked about how the internet has become more and more centralized, where we go to like three websites You know, when you get online, you probably go to three websites. And even though those websites have people with their own accounts sharing their own opinions and their own photos and whatever else they do, it's still like you're going to this centralized place. But it it really is so fractured. And even though people are talking about the same things, that's the other thing about it, is like when you go to these three websites... When you go to, like, three total websites to get your information, to get your entertainment, to get whatever it is you're looking for, they're all talking about the same thing. So, like, these things are still happening. Like, singular events are still happening. There there still are these pivotal events, of course, like real-life things. But it seems like there is less... You know, the culture pivots on fewer and fewer things each year, it feels like. It's harder and harder to find music, movies, anything of that nature that you can't avoid. You can't avoid being touched by in some way, whether you like it or not. And I don't know, just growing up and seeing that happen was so interesting to me. And it wouldn't entirely surprise me if it is able to happen again somehow. But maybe I'm just out of the loop. Maybe it's been happening this entire time and I'm out of the loop. But it seems like the things that are coming out seem like parodies. Even when they're trying to be sincere, even when they're trying to be serious, they seem like a parody of the thing that they're trying to communicate. And I'm always willing to admit that this could just be me. Like this could just be a process that everybody goes through in life. And I've been going through it for the last 15 years. But everything does feel kind of like a parody. It seems like everything was fractured and people are trying to put the pieces back together in a certain way. But the way that they're putting them back together just seems like a rearrangement. And the way that they're rearranged just feels like it's a parody. It feels like it's satire. And you know what? I'm completely okay with that. I really have no misgivings about that. I really have no animosity. I just noticed that it's changed. And uh, noticing change without criticizing excessively, without being upset about change i think is really the only way to deal with change cuz you don't want to deny change you don't you don't want to deny that things are different you don't want to pretend that things are better because they're different but you do want to notice it and in that way it's like the it's like the changing of the seasons where uh, you notice that the season to change in and you can't do nothing about it and you might prefer one season or another i like it i like fall when the dead leaves are all over when the leaves change i like the summer when it's hot and i think that's kind of what it's like i think you know the changing of culture you know whether it's a cycle like the seasons or not. I don't know. I'm not looking to hold on to that comparison. <laughs> uh, but you know, I think you can treat it similarly, where it's just like, okay, things are different now. Things are different now, and I could spend my entire the entire rest of my adult life stuck in this nostalgia industry, where it's like, remember this? Oh, sleepovers when you'd go get a, a pizza from Domino's. And uh, you'd rent a movie from blockbusters? You know, you could spend your entire life being stuck in the nostalgia industry because that's something I've actually seen people point out where it seems like one of the most popular forms of entertainment is just, remember this? And people go, yeah, oh, yeah. And I mean, even South Park did kind of a, a joke about that years ago. So this is nothing new. And I've been talking about it on this show for years as well. But it hasn't really changed, where it seems like one of the primary forms of entertainment in the age of digital dominance is just, remember this? Like this forced nostalgia. And an entire industry has been built around that. But the question is, how are we going to be nostalgic about an era in which there's really... in, In which the culture is just a mutant of of other nostalgia. Because that's kind of how I see the the 2010s in particular. And then now that we're in the 2020s, it's too early to say. But the 2010s, to me, were very much like we're going to create this mutant hybrid of different nostalgia, of different periods. Like, obviously, the 90s were featured quite prominently because of who became adults in the late 2000s and early 2010s. So obviously the 90s featured prominently in everybody's nostalgia. But it also became this sort of Frankenstein. When I think about the 2010s, I think it's like the culture was this new technology, but the new technology didn't create a whole lot that was new. Like you look at YouTube shows, you look at podcasts, and those really weren't doing anything new. We already had shows We already had radio, and those. so it's not like they're really innovating the medium that much. They're just called something else, and you access them in a different way. And maybe that always happens, but not really. I mean, we've seen the amount of technological development in the last 100 years. Uh, We've always had TV. We just called it something else. 500 years ago, they had TV. They just called it something else. No, we know something has changed technologically. We know something has changed, but it did seem like the 2010s, like, you know, despite how how much the digital world came to dominate, it didn't really change the actual content of what we were looking at. You know, the medium was slightly different, the names were slightly different, and what we ended up with culturally was this sort of Frankenstein of past decades. I'm not the only one who throws the term LARP around. There was even some politician I saw not that long ago who referred to LARP. And I was like, oh, I got to stop using that because some politician used it. But it's too good. You know, it's, it's too fun to say that. But, you know, we definitely see where the 2010s started to feel more and more like LARPing our way through culture. Culture started to feel like more and more of a Frankenstein Of things that we liked about past decades. Because we suddenly had access to every aspect of them. Very little slips under the radar. And not just new things. It's not just that new things very rarely slip under the radar. It's that old things really can't escape either. You can see where there were blogs where it's like obscure experimental tapes limited to 10 copies. Were there for everybody to hear. And that's great. I have no problem with that, but it's just that fewer and fewer things were able to escape. Even things that had escaped in the past, you know, things that had slipped under the radar 30, 40 years ago, were being brought to light during the 2010s. And the result was just this Frankenstein of information, this Frankenstein of culture, subculture. And I don't know how you become nostalgic about that. Maybe there's a way. I mean, maybe things will be so fractured that people will look back at the 2010s and say, oh, hey, I can really sink my teeth into that. I can, there, there's some, some big pieces that I can grab hold of there. Either that or things are going to start to you know, become whole again things are going to become more central and pivotal again, and people are going to look back at the 2010s and be like, it was kind of cool that things were so fractured for a little while. And then they kind of reformed into larger holes again. You know, maybe people will think that. I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea how it's going to work. But I know that our current way of... Our current basically the system of nostalgia that our culture has been using for decades was turned completely upside down by digital technology where we could seek everything out. Like, nostalgia used to be something that would find us. We didn't find it. You'd be at a junk store and you'd find an action figure that you completely forgot about. But then with the internet, you'd be, like, staying up till 5 a.m. looking at pictures of obscure action figures. And you'd be finding out, like, what year they were manufactured. So it's like you'd be just rubbing your face in nostalgia and becoming nostalgic about things that you yourself didn't even experience when they happened. That's a big part of the whole nostalgia industry is, like, looking at photos of people and being like, everyone was so cool in the 70s. Everyone was so cool. Oh, my God, like... Everyone was so cool in 1965. You know, uh, people became nostalgic. In the 2010s, people became nostalgic about time periods in which they didn't even live, times in which they weren't even born. That's how desperate we be- became for that feeling. And that's okay. You know, I'm, again, I'm, I'm just observing here. I'm not even saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that it's different. It's a change. He-Man action figures weren't something that you forget about after childhood and then find randomly in a thrift store. He-Man action figures are something you collect for the rest of your life because it's the the 2010s. You know what I mean? Uh, That's just, you know, that's such an interesting aspect of it you know the permanent childhood is, is a part of that as well which i'm as guilty of as anybody if i even need i don't know if it's i don't know if guilt is the is the right word you're guilty you're guilty of existing in permanent childhood ah oh, we're going to we're going to bring a bunch of kids to the jail today we're going to have a scared straight program at the jail today. And we're going to show them a bunch of convicts. See all these people, kids? They were convicted of living in a permanent childhood. And we had to lock them up in prison. That it does seem like something that would become a crime in, like, China. Like, oh, it's now a crime in China. Or maybe more Eastern Europe. Might be more... You'd hear that about Poland or something. Where, like, tomorrow in the news you'd hear, like, oh, the... The, the president of Poland has made it illegal to live in a state of permanent childhood. Like, you can no longer look at pictures of toys on the internet if you're past the age of 30. If you're past the age of 20. It was like that thing in Russia where, I don't know if I got it right, I don't know if I got it wrong, I don't know if it's somewhere in between, but like, like a few years ago, like there was this news I heard where it was like, Russia has made being emo illegal. Which, of course, like I guess emo, like filtered into Russia maybe some years after it did here. But there was something like that. Like that. (laughs) I don't know if I interpreted it correctly, collectly. Collectly. I don't know if I interpreted it right, but there was definitely this, this headline that made its rounds where it was like it's now being emo, like being an emo kid is now illegal in Russia. And the next thing is, you know, in Poland, it's now going to be illegal to wear a Legend of Zelda shirt if you're 35 years old. Being, uh, you know, what should be illegal is offering children lukewarm natural soda at a sleepover. That's what should be illegal. Good thing I'm not the president. I do. I wonder about sleepovers now, though. Not to. I, I got to end this episode, but. I do wonder about what a sleepover is like today because it was just it was such an important thing back then you stay over at someone's house you get a feeling for what this family is like you decide if you like this the way they smell or not the way their house smells because you might not notice how a family smells when you're just around them out in the world but when you go into their home you pick up on a smell. Like I said, some families, it smells like they were frying meatballs four hours earlier. And the first time you go there, you think that's exactly what happened. First time you go to their house, you're like, oh, this they were frying meatballs four hours ago. And the smell is still lingering. And then you go to their house the second time, the third time, the fourth time, and every single time. It's not just that it smells like somebody was frying meatballs every time you go to their house. It's that it's the exact same level of smell. Like, the smell is is like in the exact same, it's like every time you go there, it smells like meatballs were fried exactly four hours ago. And then you go, something's up with this, this is how they smell. The residue of how this family smells fills this house, and I notice it.